Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And Noel, it is our... 416th episode here at the Televerse. And uh, that number doesn't mean much to, to most people. And the reason it doesn't mean much to most people is because it's only meaningful if you divide it by 52. And if you divide it by 52, you get to eight, which means this is the eighth, the eighth make you watch a thon. It is the eighth year of the 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 celebrate the end of the eighth year of the televerse next episode will be the start of the ninth year of the televerse which is just crazy for me to think about um but we we have many different anniversaries we celebrate here at the televerse and uh one of them is the make you watch a thon and i'm really excited because this is our fourth make you watch a thon together Yes. Um, it's going to be super fun. That's coming at the end of the show, guys. I made Noel watch It's Creek. He made me watch Descending Stories, and we are going to have a lot of opinions about both, I'm sure. But it's just, it's eight years of my life, never once missing a week, ever in eight years. That's crazy. Like, yeah, it's 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 a it's a little much. Um, like people take time off, Kate. Yeah, normal people do. Healthy people do. Uh, yeah. but. <laughs> Yeah, and also you 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 haven't missed a single week since you started with me either. So no, no, I have missed multiple weeks. You've missed very, very few, very yeah. few, <laughs> and I missed half of one week when I was in Cusco. But uh, but I was on the other half of that podcast. But the point is, uh, it's the um, what's the trick of doing a podcast? Is you know you start it and you just don't stop. <laughs> it's the Barney Stinson rule for running a marathon. You start running and just that's it. There is no step two. <laughs> there is no, there step, is no two. step two. So thank you so much. Glad the podcast is still here eight years on, and we're gonna celebrate with lots of uh, entertaining and dramatic television at the end of the show. Um, thoughts on eight years? I mean, it's just really. I think it is really, really impressive, and your dedication and the amount of work that you put into this each week is the, just, that we it's, do. It's not just me. I I show up and mouth off for a little while, but I I don't edit this. I don't promote it. I don't like deal with website issues. <laughs> I don't think you uh, can call what I do promoting. Uh, that, that's that's sweet though. <laughs> So, no, you put a lot more work into this than I do, and you've done it really consistently across different websites, different um, publications, and then with multiple different co-hosts, and that's that's just a lot of work, and you should. I hope you're really proud of yourself for hitting eight years. I'm proud of us. I'm proud of yeah. the show that we put out, and I think we do a good job, and I know I have a blast doing it. So thank you so much, sir. Um, and part of what I enjoy about doing this podcast is that when when shit happens, I know it's in anywhere in the realm of TV. I know I have someone to talk about uh, about it with, yeah. and, and and that is you, and of course our gentle listeners out there. Um, and this week it means several things. Let's start with, I guess, the most positive one, which yes. is that the Great British Bake Off has a new season that's going to air weekly on Netflix. And I'm excited it's back, even though I still stand the original cast much better, and you know. Paul Hollywood. But 
still, you know, I'm I'm interested that they're choosing to do the weekly model instead of waiting and, and, and dumping the whole season, like in the more standard Netflix way. And I'm curious if you think this is going to head towards a weekly model for their reality shows. What do you think? Well, I think that it, for their in-house stuff, it won't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I agree. So, so doing like another season of Blown Away or any more Nailed It or anything, they're just going to drop all of those at once. Um, but as a co-production, not even a co-production, as a licensed production that they import over, um, I think it just makes sense because I'm sure that there's no lack of like viewership drop as a result of getting spoilers. Mm-hmm. However, it behooves them to avoid that sort of discourse. It's one of the reasons why, like, even though, um, like, the idea that PBS, like, realized that they needed to air Downton Abbey pretty quickly um, after the first season in particular of, like, oh, no, people really love this show. Oh, people don't want to know what happens. Oh, we need to figure out a way around this. Um <laughs> And that, um, and then same thing with uh, BBC America and trying to figure out how to do Doctor Who in a way that just, why would we make people wait six months when they can tour at it? When they um, will immediately tour it, not can, yeah. will. Yeah. yeah, no, will. And I mean, the same thing happened with like the anime industry as well. Um, so I think that there's just a realization that, especially with something like Great British Bake Off, that's a big cultural touchstone that it just from it behooves them to release these things at the same time and i'm sure like plenty of digital outlets are really excited about this too especially ones that are target a u.s audience are now like oh thank god Mm -hmm. yeah we can we can we can get it (laughs) yeah and not have to worry about it so i think that that's really good as well yeah no people were definitely um um hopping a flight to to the uk to watch that one like the day it aired um, through less than legal yeah. means. So, so if Netflix can, I mean, and it doesn't hurt them to have it on because it doesn't go away. You know, it's not like it stops airing; it just goes right. into their catalog. So, yeah, so yeah. it makes sense, and it also like incur. And the other reason I think it's smart-ish for Netflix is that while Netflix wants to position itself as a TV replacement of a thing that you go to when you want to find something to watch, as opposed to just channel surfing. Having a new episode of this each week means that you have at least a guaranteed each week login, basically. Uh, and so that, from just a metrics perspective, is a good idea, um, I think. Um, but it also means that you assholes can just give me weekly episodes of Terrace House instead of making me wait <laughs> five months between parts. Yeah. Well, and also just like, you know, well, while, while you're waiting for that next episode of, of Great British Bake Off to, to yeah. come on. Watch Nailed It. Check out Nailed Watch. It. Check out Sugar yeah. Rush. You know, check, you know. Yeah, exactly. We have this other yeah. programming that the algorithm would love for you to explore. Right. And that's another way of like looking at it. And I think that's a really, really good point is like, this is a really good opportunity to promote their in-house stuff as well. And yeah, so I think it's just smart. Um, but we'll see how well it it plays with their overall model. But they we, they release stuff weekly all the time now. I mean, Patriot Act. Um, they did the same thing with Michelle Wolf's show. There are plenty of weekly programmings that they've experimented with that have varying degrees of success. But this will have actual success because it's Great British Bake Off. Well, and because it's tied, because it's going to be airing somewhere else. 
If it was yes. only airing on Netflix, I wouldn't expect it to have the same thing. But because people will be talking, people in the Bake Off community and the fandom will be yes. talking about this every week. It, yes. It's more of an encouragement to go, um, as opposed to, to go check it out and, and, and stay up to date, as opposed to remembering that Michelle Wolf's show is on or, or Hasan Minaj's show is on and like doing a weekly model because of the topicality, you know, yeah. that I did. That allows you to do this is very specifically so that you can watch it with everybody else and yeah that you know we'll see what happens with it but it's certainly interesting yeah yeah, yeah so that starts uh august 30th next friday mm-hmm. uh we will see if i if i have thoughts on it then yeah probably i will but we'll see um also uh tv news this week uh, tears, tears and sad because uh, Brennan Routh and Courtney Ford are apparently going to be leaving Legends of Tomorrow. The characters are being written out some point during this season as a creative decision. It's pretty clear that neither actor wanted to leave the show. Um, and, you know, it's it's tricky because we obviously haven't seen any of this. We don't know what the storyline's going to be. But both of us are like, what the? F- <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Why are you writing them off the show? They're great together on the show. Bringing her on has really helped uh, him, his character, and and has given like this new dimensions that they can play for that character, and also new dimensions within the group. I mean, come on, book club. Yeah, no, it it's really kind of it's really really frustrating, and I mean, I'm. I don't understand why they're getting rid of her good, good boy, Ray Palmer. I just, I don't understand it. Um, and I don't think any of us expect them to get renewed for another season. So no, it's not like it's I a don't. budget thing for next yeah. season, you know? Yeah. No, it just, it doesn't really make sense to me. And it kind of hurts me a little bit. And while I'm glad that Ralph is going to get a chance to play a Superman again. In I'm so excited for that. <laughs> I'm I, and I'm very excited for the Superman in particular that he's playing because it's going to be a real departure for him and I'm excited about that. Uh, but it's like, but but now you're now you've tainted it, Legends of Tomorrow. You've tainted it, and I'm very upset about it, and I don't like it, and I'm not happy. And just don't don't get don't write off Sarah. <laughs> yeah, where are we gonna get the big with the, the cupcakes? Like, come on. Mick and Mick and Ray cupcake buddies. Yeah. Aww, yeah. I don't like this. See, but happen. we also we trust the Legends writers pretty much. Yes. Pretty well. Which is why there are these two warring, you know, perspectives on this within me. Part of me saying, trust yeah. the writers. Part of me saying, but I don't wanna. <laughs> yeah, I don't wanna. I want I want Brandon Roth to stay on my TV. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what happens. And we're going to end our top of show stay, uh, discussion here with just, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but. Well, I mean, I, it legitimately feels like a really with Seth and Amy sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> this does. So, uh, fuck ABC yeah. and fuck Dancing with the Stars. And anybody who's doing Dancing with the Stars who isn't speaking up about this, um, who isn't contractually obligated to not speak up with about this um, should be doing so. And calling Tom Bergeron's statement that he put out there speaking up is adorable. It's more than he would normally do, which I get. And he's in a tricky position. That guy is like, has been around so long that him putting out that statement was a big deal. It was a big deal for him, but Sean Spicer 
doesn't get to go on ABC and rehab his image and become cuddly and adorable and one of America's favorite people and then parlay that shift in his persona and his overall, uh, just like the associations, the cultural associations people have with him, so that he can then pivot into going on CNN and MSNBC, which is what I anticipate is going to happen next. And it makes me very, very angry. And um, in in a way that, like, I there have been other terrible people who have been on Dancing with the Stars. This is not the first terrible person they've decided to hire. Um, and I also, it's like, even before Stephen Colbert brought him out on the fucking Emmys, those are the Emmys, right? And it was bullshit yes. and it was normalizing. And I lost a lot of respect for Colbert when he did that. I, he really hasn't recovered in my eyes since he did that. Um, he's just, I mean, he's a brilliant comedian, but but I, any regard I had for him as like a speaker of truth to power went away when he did, made that choice. Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting something like this. Um, and I'm glad some people are pissed off and some people are boycotting Dancing with the Stars. I think you should, but I think it's not going to dent their viewership. Oh yeah. We haven't really said what Sean Spicer is going to be on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. And he's also going to pull in, I think it's, I think the dancing salary, the salary for a dancer is up to like somewhere in the 200,000 range. Yeah. He's Um, being paid six figures. Yeah. It's a, yeah, uh, which is nauseating. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you said, this is not the first time they've done something like this, but it's legitimately the first time that it just feels just really, really gross and just blah and unacceptable. And like, like I said, like Bergeron's statement is about as strongly worded a statement as you're going to get from him mm-hmm. um because the the man is at the end of the day just kind of a consummate professional having been in the television hosting business for longer than i think i've been alive uh, or about as long as i've been alive um but it's also one of those things where i think like i need to like look up what uh brown karoma brown who's going to be on this season oh he said nice things he's a nice yeah guy. no he yeah yeah talked with spicer and was just like yeah no he's a nice guy and i just went "Mm, no no." you don't get to say that nazis didn't use chemical weapons against against people and be a nice guy that's not how it works yeah so it's one of those issues of like this isn't okay and like the hopefully like the expectation is that he goes home immediately like after i think they do an elimination after the second week at the start so like week two or week three i think they do an elimination first elimination it's been a long time since i watched dancing with the stars um so hopefully he goes home just immediately um and people can maybe get back to enjoying james vanderbeek being on this year i would love Um, to be enjoying james vanderbeek on dancing with the stars but yeah, but you shouldn't at the same time, even if once Spicer goes home at this point, because it's it's not really acceptable that they're doing this. It's not acceptable that they have him on. So he shouldn't be on and they shouldn't be doing this. And you would think that ABC, given its track record recently of navigating political stuff with both t- on air talent and then hiring decisions like this, it's like, who's. Who's watching, who's minding the store exactly right now? Mm-hmm. And why are you allowing this stuff to happen? I mean, it's like, 
you've got the stuff with uh, uh, Roseanne Barr, um, had to deal with that. And then the ups and downs of Constance Wu's <laughs> reaction to the fresh off the boat renewal. Um, and now this, it's like, uh, what's going on? Who in politics are you trying to make happy? At, who, you know, Disney has a vested interest in in making sure people don't think of them as a monopoly. So, yeah, and so and no one is. Um, that's another issue. It's just like there are other there are other Republicans that you could have gotten for this. I mean, Jeff Flake's available, and he's spineless and terrible, so he'd make a really good limbo dancer. But <laughs> oh, burn. Um, but that would at least be slightly more acceptable, maybe. It's hard to tell at this point. Yeah. Well, it no. Jeff Flake would definitely be more acceptable than Sean Spicer. Yeah. It's like not even close for me. And I don't like Jeff Flake. Um, but yeah, no, it's just um, it's very, very angering. And uh, I was like, we're talking about that in the podcast. That's happening. So thank you. No. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that cheery note, uh, let's let, and all channel our own uh, inner Whitney's while we relive that glorious moment from this week's post finale and listen to the Whitney Houston rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. We'll be right back after this with our week in TV. <laughs> This week in TV, we're going to be talking a bit about the most recent episode of Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj, uh, Why Your Public Transportation Sucks. Then I'll talk a little bit of, very briefly about Kim's Convenience Season 2 and 3, because you know I finished it. Um, and Noel, you caught up with uh, Terror Infamy Episode 2, All the Demons Are Still in Hell. I'll talk briefly about Season 2 of Mindhunter on Netflix, and the, then the post finale, In My Heels, and we'll run things out with Queen Sugar. Now, Omamere, how's it pronounced? I think that's right, but I honestly don't know. Okay. I, yeah, I was worried that I like missed something because I was like doing things while I watched the episode, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I was too. So that'll be a fun discussion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, you know, well, I, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. So first up, though, we have Patriot Act. And this was an episode all about public transportation with a side of the Koch brothers. Very timely because fuck that dude. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, that's not a very nice thing to say when someone dies, but I also yeah. feel it's entirely earned. So, you know, make better life choices, everyone. Um, so what did you think of this episode? So I really like this episode, uh, in no small part as someone who relies on public transit to get around and has for a very long time. Um, I relied on buses to get to college out of my bedroom community in Georgia. I relied on buses to get to work 
when I moved into Atlanta, um, buses and trains. Um, and here in Washington State, I rely on buses um, to get pretty much everywhere because um, I don't own a car. And so I was really excited about this um, episode uh, because I'm always all about wanting to talk about public transit. Um, and having lived also in a state where, well, uh, the cock, the cock, the Koch brothers, um, uh, Americans for Prosperity did not sh- scuttle a initiative attack, a uh, uh, transit uh, initiative in Georgia. They might as well have, um, while I was there, um, someone took their playbook basically and ran with it. Um, but so I was really excited about this episode. Um, and I really like how they lay out everything, including discussing it from a federal level, which I think is really important in terms of what the DOT is doing and not more importantly, not doing now. And where we're prioritizing infrastructure, even though we should be putting a lot more infrastructure into rail, um, then looking at it at a local level where it actually really significantly matters as well. Um, so the example in Nashville, then Milwaukee, and then the stuff in Arizona. Um, generally, it's a really, really, really good episode. It's a really good exploration about how this all works and doesn't work. And then they just kind of ruin it at the end um, with their little gag with the other Coke brothers that had a show, a reality show on E! back in the early teens, uh, 2010s, I should say. And that just kind of just undercuts a lot of it for me. And I didn't, I was very unhappy that they made that decision. So um, I just pretend that the episode ends right before then. Um, (laughs) Which is better. Which is better. But no, so this is a really good episode about transit and transportation. And um, yeah, it's really good. And it demonstrates, I think, a really kind of also like a really good development of this show and how, what they're doing and how they're tackling things. Um, so I really, really liked this episode a great deal. Um, how did you feel about it? Yeah. American public transportation versus uh, funding for roads and uh, supporting of industries that are related to cars has a really gross and long history. And there's a very specific reason our country looks the way it does around transportation. And that's because of people who are, you know, like our, like the the parallels to the current one percent back in the day making sure that they shut down trolleys and that that you couldn't get around cities you shut down public transportation systems so that the rubber lobby could make a crap ton more money on cars uh back in the day like it's 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 like baked in or we can maintain racial uh segregation issues absolutely really clearly which is something that i mean i can talk to your i can talk your ear off about in alana's uh public transit system as well but go on yeah no it's it's been a um it's just it's 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 a long and gross and uh broken history and i think this conversation i mean every time it comes up for me in my like in my entertainment and in my like news world whether it's on history podcasts or on this um it's a valuable conversation and i like whenever i watch or listen to some like a a show like this with people and and invariably there there's some people who didn't know about this because if you're not seeking like it's it's so insidious you know (laughs) it's something that the average person is not spending their time thinking about huh 
what are the larger fundamental forces creating this situation aside from the damn bus is late? Because <laughs> you've got to just get to work. That's your pressing concern at the time, you know? Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't have the spare time to spend sitting around and pondering these things. And that's why we pay Hasan Minaj to do that <laughs> and his team. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think it was, a, 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 I think it's a very important topic. I think it's very timely. And I think when like all the, around the, you know, with the election, there's a lot of discussion that keeps popping up and then going away in politics right now around bipartisan funding for infrastructure. And yes, those conversations around infrastructure always mean roads. Like that's, yes. it's, it's a hundred percent. It's like roads and bridges is a hundred percent. That's how means. it always gets framed is roads and bridges, even though we mean a number of other things, but roads and bridges are what people understand. Yeah. Even though a lot of that money is going to go to things like ports, mm-hmm. which yeah. also need drastic repairs anyway. Yeah. And so, so, you know, just kind of waving a flag and be like, hi, trains. Also, buses, yes, also buses, high-speed rail. These are all things that would really, really, really help. Or, you know, like the tunnel uh, that they mentioned, of course, in this episode. And so I, I thought it was, I thought it was, well, it seems to be well-researched. I thought it, the the just the hints towards a discussion of how you can't really escape giving the Koch brothers money, even if you really try not to, because they have like interests they have uh like majority or strong minority share interests in everything you can possibly think of um and so it makes it really really hard to try to just like well i just won't support them i won't give them my money it's like that's not actually a solution uh you yeah. need to come up with other solutions because that's not going to work there everywhere i thought that was a you know a good nod towards that with all the getty images stuff and um yeah, like that, I would have liked even more exploration of that. Uh, maybe in a future episode, it wouldn't have been on, on theme. So maybe a future episode. But yeah, I thought it was funny. I thought it was informative. And I thought it was appropriately pointed. And I also agree yes. that the ending bit didn't work. It just felt like it was instead of being, I mean, it needed to be more barbed, I thought, because yes. it, it just kind of deflated the weight of the argument that they were making. And I think there's a better way to do a comedic like it felt, it felt very much like trying to do, like John Oliver's thing, and he does it yes. better. Right? No, he does in part because he doesn't set it up by initially introducing these as the Florida State Winklevoss twins. Whereas this immediately undermines all our credibility. Why are we listening to the two of them talk about this? Whereas Oliver just celebrities are going to tell you exactly what I just told you using oftentimes the exact same language yeah 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 so i think that they're you know it this is a maybe a a, a, like you were saying a more of a progression for the show and for for manhaj and i haven't seen i haven't been following the show enough to speak to that um but if it is then hopefully they're gonna keep progressing and keep thinking about you know what they can do to innovate and and make uh like like crystallize their voice, which is already pretty clear, I would say. Um, but no, I thought it was a good episode and certainly a very valuable topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, good episode. Very valuable. 
Very valuable and very worth my time uh, and your time as well, listener. I don't have a better transition than that. That was bad. I don't have a better one. Um, is Kim's Convenience and I finished up season two and three and I'm all caught up with the show and it's delightful and wonderful and you should go all, y'all should all go watch it. And, uh, I've been recommending it to friends and family and it's just, you know, like it's, it's so nice <laughs> to have a show that I can recommend to friends and family. I only have a few of those that I can like, pretty safely say like this is you should like this it will be funny it, you will laugh it is like not offensive and it is thoughtful and interesting and kind and funny and silly and goofy and lots of many lots of things and there isn't a part of it where i'm gonna go well you have to not be put off by the fact that for example steven universe is animated which immediately cuts out a swath of people who just like stop listening as soon as i say well it's an animated show gone or like like it's it's a subtitle show gone right it's so just it's very nice to have a show like kim's convenience that i can just be like it's great go check it out anyone should go check like it's not i don't have to be in the middle of the venn diagram of interest like like i am that's a very particular you can just go anyone go watch it it's lovely yeah no it is it's really sweet they're really good at developing running jokes mm-hmm. um <laughs> sneak attack horror sneak attack why are <laughs> you sneak attack seen it just so i can say sneak attack <laughs> And but also like the way that they we talked about this a little bit when you watch season one, but they ramp it up much more in seasons two and three of how they develop their side characters and their bench characters. Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, my heart just goes out to Pastor Nina all the time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much so. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. because she's 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 so lovely and so well meaning, and also just. Just so, so, so sweet. <laughs> Remember when we said we needed to see a spinoff show where Constantine got a beer with Father Bra? I also yeah. need a different episode of that show where Father Bra gets a beer with Pastor Nina. Because, yes. like, it would be so cathartic and wonderful to watch that. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it would be great. I would and, be yeah, no. So it's just got a really deep bench, but then there's also just the overwhelming sweetness of it as well. Um, and the fact that when they sometimes do sort of cringy stuff, they don't do like real heavy cringy type stuff either, which I really, really appreciate. Um, so it's just really sweet. And it's also, it's a different sort of kind of misanthropic comedy sometimes as well, which I also think is like kind of the key differential differential type thing here and that the Kims are all, with the exception of Young, kind of all vaguely varying levels of misanthropic or unhappy mm-hmm. in some ways. But the way that that gets deployed, the way that that gets characterized is very different from other shows with these kinds of things. So like... All the things with um, Janet and her roommate's girlfriend who just slowly, steadily <laughs> moves into the apartment mm-hmm. with them. It's just, it's so good. And there are instances where Janet, who is a little brittle sometimes, and I really like that about her, just watching that kind of collapse yeah. around them is just, it's really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I think the show's just so sweet. And I'm really glad you carved out time for it. And it it wasn't me that slept on your mattress, Kate. It was the raccoon. <laughs> 100% was definitely the raccoon. Like, oh my God. And the fact that 
Yeah, where that goes is, and, and the, that it takes him so long to, you know, is great. It's, it's so good. I just, of course, it needn't be say, said, but I'm going to say it anyways. We do need a Kim's Convenience Superstar crossover. Yeah, I don't know. How Some that sort would of work, a conference, but... something. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but yes, that needs to happen. It would be amazing. It will never yeah. happen, but in my brain, yeah. it's already happening. I'm very <laughs> excited about it. Shannon and Amy are stuck working on a project together, and it's great. So, anyway, uh, very different. Now for something completely different: the terror infamy. How was yeah. episode two? All the demons are still in hell. So we're still doing a lot of setup type stuff. Um, we're very gradually getting there is what it very much feels like. So we kind of do a quick time skip um, from Pearl Harbor to late February where they're being um, pushed off the island. Um, not into not into the um, camps yet because um, there was that little gap in which a number of folks were mo- removed from their residences along the West Coast and particularly like near military bases that it was like, all right, you can go wherever you want. You just can't be here type of deal. And then it was like, no, we're going to put you all in camps now. Um, And so there's like, they get to LA, they get like rooms and everything. And then it's just like, nope, racetrack for sorting. And then we're going to bust you in this case up to Oregon uh, to better fit where they filmed this show (laughs) as opposed to someplace else in California. Um, and so that's kind of how the episode ends is their arrival in the camp. Um, so a lot of this is still a lot of table setting, a lot of like, oh, that, what, why is he responding that way to this type of deal? But also making sure that Chester's, um, girlfriend is still on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, that is basically what this episode is about, is making sure that Chester's girlfriend is still on the show and the way that the show has to bend itself a little bit to make sure that she's still on. Um, and that's a little frustrating that they couldn't find a more elegant way of doing this. Um, and it also, for me, the real kind of takeaway for this is the fellow who plays Chester is 38 years old. And I'm supposed to believe he's a college student, I think. And I'm, I was like going, he, he looks too old for this. And I was like, we kind of had this discussion a little bit in a different vein last week where we we're kind of talking about how Chester is being written and depicted of like this kind of really headstrong native born guy who like buys into not, maybe not buys into, but has a different sort of perspective on culture and everything as a result of being American and it was just like, this feels much more appropriate for someone who's in their 20s. But particularly in this episode, I'm having trouble reconciling the fact that even though he does not look 38, at at other points, I'm just like, you're definitely in your mid-30s, buddy. I don't know why you're acting like an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you should be more mature than this. <laughs> yes, and that's what it boils down to. Um, so I like, think that there's Especially that. with those parents, too. Yes, especially with his parents. So that was something I was running into. And then also juxtaposed against the fact that the girlfriend has a lot more loose, has a lot more screen time this week than she did last week of like, she's 10 to 12 years younger as an actor mm-hmm. than he is. And it's just like, uh, she she actually looks like she could be in college. Mm-hmm. 
Not so much. Not. Yeah. And so that I was running into that for like half the episode, and I hate when that happens and distracts me. Um, but I'm hoping as we get into the third episode that we're going to get into some more spooky stuff. This episode is a little light on the spook. Um, though there is some scary human horror stuff um, as the folks who are stuck in an FBI um, interrogation facility, um, the folks who were carted, uh, busted off at the end of the premiere, um, deal with being contained, but finding some ways to deal with that. Um, it's not like the best stuff, and I'm still kind of waiting for the show to kick into a gear. And I'm hoping now that we're in the camp that they're going to kick into a gear. Um, knock on wood, hopefully, because my hopes for this show are like still high. But the, again, two episodes of table setting have me slightly concerned. Okay. Well, I do intend to catch up, and we'll see uh, how it's how it's going by the end of episode three. More thoughts on this next week. Um, next up is Mindhunter over on Netflix. The second season dropped last week, and I'm still only about five in um, to the the new season. Just because it's it's an intense show, guys. <laughs> it's it's not the I'm like let's watch one quick episode before bed. Maybe not the one with all the serial killers. Um, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I am really digging this new season. Um, there's uh, Michael Service shows up as in a significant role, which is which is always fun and interesting. Love of friends. Does he crossing. have any scenes? Yeah, does he have any scenes with? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But he does not have a fedora, so there, you know, and he has emotions, um, though they are <laughs> masked. Um, so, so yeah, no, the, the, enjoying the, the fringe crossover. Um, the, yeah, there's some good stuff happening and some interesting things happening. Um, I enjoy, I'm enjoying the performances. They, they are really exploring more of, uh, the home life of some of the characters, especially those that didn't get a lot of time in season one in a way that I think is interesting. Um, some of it is maybe a bit contrived, but, uh, I'll give it to them because the conversations are getting out of it as relates as pertains to the their work, I think are really good. And um, yeah, we'll have more thoughts. We're, we're planning to do a season spotlight on this listeners down down the road a little bit when we have time to, to catch up with it. Um, but I so I probably won't say more until then, but I am enjoying the season. I like it's it's such a specific tone, you know, it's like those giant texts. Um, like landmark uh. things, right? I love it. It's so it's so in your face, and it's so appropriate for this show. And I also really enjoy the performances. It's such a different, but still definitely Jonathan Groff performance. You know, there's like a through line with his character here versus on um, looking looking thank you and in like the other stuff i've seen him in like it's it's really interesting to to follow for me and the the cameos and the the guest performances have been really good including charlie manson pops up which is you know it's a character you've seen portrayed many times um and fortunately in this one he's crazy uh well like that manson kind of very performed yeah. crazy but not uh jeremy davies style which i really appreciated not twitchy and um yeah there's there's some really interesting stuff and uh at kemper's back to of course a horrifying highlight of season one back already in the first half of season two and yeah i don't want to say more so yeah are you looking forward to this one or not so much 
No, I am. Like, I really like season like, one. It's, like, hard so, to look forward to it because it's so intense. Right. Yeah, but no, this is something I've still been wanting to watch. So I just haven't had time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm very excited to get around to it. Yeah. Um, very excited to get around to. Uh, I was very excited to get around to, I should say. The Pose finale in my heels. And this was another lovely episode. Um, the... You know, you could, again, you could tell that they're like, we don't know if we're getting a third season, so we're ending it with a nice happy bow for for everyone. Um, we're gonna make sure that you know, if if this is the last episode of the show, we're not ending on a tragic cliffhanger. That's not that's not how this show works. And I really appreciated that. The, like a good like maybe quarter to a third of the finale is in the ballroom. It's the the mother of the year ball, and it's terrific. They um. They they just they it's 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 a beautiful episode. There's some like character nearly dies from pneumonia in the hospital. Um, characters lose their business or and and have other really significant setbacks. So it's not all. I mean, obviously, there's element of wish fulfillment and um and rose color glasses. Uh, you know, it, just because it's not a story that is seeped in despair. Uh, the way that so many, especially a period piece, but so many stories centered on, on trans women of color, um, which mostly you're looking at like an ep- a very special episode of Law and Order SVU or something. You know, it's not the center of most uh, shows, but th- it tends to be like not the, the the happy victories, not like the human moments, not the um, the successes and the, you know, it tends to center on 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 despair and tragedy and so just to have like i keep saying about the season to have uh the season that started with madonna's vogue take us through the rise of that and then the taper off and uh, all the attention moving on and then these characters are just still there i love the pacing of the season so that happens like two-thirds of the way through the season and then we got to deal with the characters to deal with like they thought this was going to be their breakthrough and for some of them it was, but it wasn't, didn't stick. And for others, it helped get them some new, some gigs and some money so they could like get things going in other ways, you know, like, but then it, then it all went away. And then what's going to happen next? They, they had enough time that they could live in the what next. And I thought that that has been uh, a very fruitful corner of the show. The, um, the, the love story with Angel and Poppy has just been, it's so it's wonderful. It's close to, but not via Hollywood levels for me. But it's close. I love those two. They're so great together. Um, again, very earnest, very heartfelt, very honest, and that's what I. Those are like some of the markers of what I look for in the 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 relationships I most fervently stand and ship. And uh, so they, they, they proposed to each other in the finale. It's so great. At the same time. It was so beautiful. It's ugh, at the ball. Anyways, I love the post finale. It was fabulous. And then they got uh, had an excuse to get Billy Porter out in heels and give appropriate weight to that, too, which was which is fun. For those who don't know, of course, he would start on Broadway in Kinky Boots. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's right. He did. I forgot about that. Yeah. They didn't find an excuse for him to sing, but he already previously tore the house down 
in the uh the the gale the gala episode of the season so like fair enough and instead we got to see just some some really terrific um, ballroom work from all of our our favorites so yeah it was it was another lovely season of pose i'm very glad it's gonna be back for season three um let's head on over to our last episode for the week in tv and that's queen sugar oma mary um what did you think about the way they've brought nova back in and whether you're buying that i mean i feel like we got to spend some quality time with darla this episode what did you what did you think uh so the nova stuff i think is okay Mm -hmm. like i think that the way in which they bring her back through charlie is smart and the the arc of that sort of thing of happening of having charlie go on a like a small bender um in new orleans is and then having nova be the one that brings her back um to saint joe i think is really smart in terms of like attempting a reconciliation sort of deal of like charlie does not want to be in debt to anyone so th- that way of like maybe beginning a reconciliation on top of nova's uh newspaper article i think is a good way of bring starting to reintroduce her to the family to a certain degree but i also like that there's pushback against that as well from by in particular like no you you have literally brought things back that are hurting me to my bones go away and i like how they style nova particularly in that vi um whatchamacallit in that vi encounter in the diner since nova normally looks really sophisticated looks really well put together and in that seems younger almost in a lot of ways and in I don't like saying childlike, but definitely in, for Nova, a significantly younger sort of skewing look mm-hmm. than what she normally goes for. Less so I mature, really like, yeah. Yeah, less mature, I think, is a better way of saying that. And I think that that really helps convey a certain degree of emotional placement for both of them. And I really, really liked that. So the Nova stuff, I think, works well. Um but again, Nova's realization now that this is that she should have consulted people is like, sweetie, it's a little too late. You you published a book and it's making a lot of it's making a lot of press. I don't know that it's making a lot of money, but it's making a lot of press. Mm-hmm. Um, so too little, too late. But also, I don't want you to leave because I love you as a performance. So don't go. But also made so many you've made so many mistakes how did you not already know that you already asked for forgiveness not permission person because i knew that <laughs> yeah no we all knew that nova we all knew that already yeah um <laughs> everyone knew that apparently yeah. except for you which i'm glad you had that breakthrough but come on yeah yeah, yeah. so the nova stuff i think worked generally well but the darla stuff is just like gut-wrenching um just all of it top down was just really really good and the performance particularly when again vi finds her um it's just like oh this is really hard to watch it's and it's deeply uncomfortable to watch and but it's also like deeply kind of heartbreaking as well but my big thing with it is that it's really good for darla but it also allows service to be done to Ralph Angel as a character in terms of like, this is not how he would have reacted to any of this even last season. Um, And so the way in which he handles this issue and arguably the way in which they all handle this, 
I think is really potent. And I think it's to a certain degree, thanks to Nova's book, um, because Darla has been wronged as well, even if her identity is protected. But as Darla pointed out, uh, no, anyone with two bra- two brain cells can put together that you're talking about me. Including all of my coworkers, yeah. Including all of my coworkers. So I think that the way in which that they've banded together as a way and have brought Dar- Darla much deeper, well, not much deeper, but deeper into the fold to a certain degree, I think is also really, really good. So something good has come of the Nova stuff in a way, uh, even if it took um, Darla slipping and slipping away from her sobriety. Um, and, but I'm also hoping that this is not a start of a longer cycle of breaking her sobriety, but also as opposed to, all right, time to start doing the work again. And we will help you with that. And also we will have to help you with that because we also need to continue doing this, uh, subplot <laughs> with the guy from Vi- uh, Vice Past. Who's he associated? Yeah. Um, no, it's not by the musician uh, ex-boyfriend. Yeah, the musician ex-boyfriend is associated with someone else, and I can't remember who off the top of my head, and it's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Anyway, him. Um, yeah. So him. Um, so I think both of those elements work generally really well. How did you feel about them before um, we dive into the fact that Micah should not be allowed to babysit? Um, well, I have thoughts on that, but, um, I thought that it worked really well. I hadn't, I mean, I didn't realize that Darla had not made that connection for herself about, you know, the fact that she couldn't possibly have consented, um, because she was, she knew she was out of her mind, uh, that night and she didn't remember any of it. Um, but so I didn't realize she hadn't made that connection and that, but that is a very honest thing. That is something that like when me too, uh, the hashtag started just going viral in a new to that, the new most recent extent, you, you saw post after post of per- people who were suddenly realizing that their experiences had been assault, had been rape, had been all these, like that they had just like actively stepped around that part of their life and their experiences to not have to deal like address and, and deal with the weight of that. And so I thought the, what they did with that for her in this episode was like really, it was really reminiscent of that. I thought it was really well done, and the fact that she still can't even say it out loud yet, um, I thought was also really a really smart choice. Really well done. Um, having kept Darla and Vi separate for most of the season, as far as I can remember, outside of like maybe like a oh hey kind of thing, picking up Blue, made this all the more effective. Because you didn't necessarily know, because it took so long to get by to to trust Darla. You didn't necessarily know how she was going to respond. And because she is dealing with that trauma herself over her past and reliving it, that I think gives her the compassion in this moment where in a a different time, maybe she wouldn't have, especially when Darla's looking for Blue. Yeah. Um. And and so that I think just though that 
that's not who you expect her to be dealing with, you know, in this moment. And, and, and I thought it was really great. I thought it worked really, really well. Um, yeah, I, I just that whole part of the show. I've been, you know, we are we've been worried about Darla for a few weeks now, and I think that the way that they left things in the previous episode was really um, potent and powerful and stressful and ang- anxiety inducing, and then the payoff here worked like you know we've been saying worked really really well, and um, yeah, we'll see what comes next. Yeah. Um. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, Micah and Blue a little bit. Okay, so Blue ran off to to go pee to a different, completely different place. That is not Micah's fault. That no. is so. Micah is absolutely there's no reason for Micah to not babysit. Is how I feel about that. He took his eyes off a kid who sometimes is not the best at you know. <laughs> yes, but that's okay. I think that's okay. Yeah, I think I, I, guess. I know. I started babysitting when I was eleven. So yeah, I mean. I think, I, I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you might be have stricter guidelines. Maybe it's more surprise that all my charges made it out okay. A little bit now. No, I'm also one of those people who's just like, oh, you need to go to the bathroom? Oh, me too, type of thing. Works of like, great, because I also yeah. have to go. Yeah, no, perfect timing. Yeah. We're in sync. Um, <laughs> it's kind of how I approach that thing. Um, but I do think that it does provide like a nice sort of way of reminding Micah of stuff and making sure that that's kind of always at the forefront of his mind um, and how he's sort of navigating stuff. But I really appreciate how it's capped with the discussion of do not let this get to you. And it feels do not let it drive you into a bad place type of thing. Remember it, but don't let it consume you type of thing. And I, I really appreciate that as a kind of follow through to the end of the previous episode of, all right, we're making a stand, we're drawing a line and we're doing it together type of deal. So I really appreciate that there's a thematic through line for that. Prosper. We love Prosper. Prosper's the best, so man. I really, I really hope that date happened. That him and his new lady know. friend. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that date happened. Yeah. So... I also hope that they, I I'm, I don't think they're gonna, but I really hope they don't try to play some, ro- like, some, like, love triangle BS with Ralph Angel now, and now that Darla needs more support. We'll see. Yeah, what, we'll I hope see. so, too, but we'll see. I, I kind yeah. of have a feeling they're gonna go that way anyway, but yeah, yeah hopefully not. Hopefully not. Erica Tazel deserves better. <laughs> God, she deserves so much better. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, what wins your week in TV? Um, I'll give it to Patriot this week. Uh, what about you? Uh, post finale, but Queen Sugar's close. That was good too, and I love Kim's Convenience. I keep watching good TV. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. But I'll it give is. it to the post finale. Um, now we'll take a break, listen to a couple trailers, and come back, or maybe a couple songs, and come back with our Make You Watch a Thon number eight. Woo! With Descending Stories and Shit's Creek. We'll be right back after this. Revenue. There are people here from the government. Maybe it's crazy. People are just like taking our stuff. Leave your finances to me, said son of a bitch. There's a very small amount set aside for you, and one asset the government has allowed you to retain. The kids. The children are dependents, Moira. 
bought a small town in 1991. I bought that as a joke for my son. You can live there for next to nothing until you get back on your feet. Johnny Rhodes. Rolling shit. Oh, you're, you're the uh, mayor we're supposed to meet. That's right. So if you're looking for a nasty kiss, it's mine. You have a couple of sweets. This guy. This is a motel, so we cater more to off-road truckers and drunk teenagers. The place is a dump. I it's tried. a dump. You know what? It's a hellhole. This wine is awful. Give me another glass. God, we haven't been close. I don't want to be just written off as some gorgeous airhead, you know? This is my town. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And Noel, it's Make You Watch It on Time. And as listeners will have heard um, from that, I guess, trailer, I have to think of, decide what I'm going to use for this. Uh, the, the My Make You Watch It on Pick for this year was Schitt's Creek Season 1, because I promised to not make you watch too many episodes, because as listeners may remember, last year you watched all of The Leftovers in like a month. And that's just, that's too much. It's I mean, much. it's it's not even a many episodes. It was just a lot too much emotionally. It was just, yeah, it was just too much. <laughs> um, so, of course, I've seen all five seasons of Schitt's Creek. Uh, I'm curious whether watching the first season, if well, first of all, if you liked it, listeners, I really hoped he, hope he liked it. And if he didn't, it's just going to be, this going to be difficult for me, but I'll power through. Okay, he can. I'll, I'll like stop the aside now. Um, and if you did like it, I'm curious if you're gonna check out more. So let's first let's start out with it's already given. I love this show because I've talked about it a bunch and I made you watch it. Um, what did you think going into it? Did myself and your person overhype it for you? Was there too much pressure surrounding? Like we all really hope you like the show because I know that that has impacted me in the past when i'm trying you know often recommended shows uh so i'm gonna shut up i'm gonna shut up and stop talking what did you think of shit's creek so i do think that there's a high degree of like pressure about it especially now yes um it just kind of took off over the past year in, in thanks in no small part to showing up on netflix and everyone finding it um since it's buried on pop in the u.s um, and most people don't even know where Pop is on their cable listing. I don't. Um, even though we can also watch it on CBC because we're close enough. Um, <laughs> but so there, there was that pressure of like, okay, I'm worried what happens if I don't like this. And I was kind, I was very much in that realm for like a solid section of season one of where I don't know what this show is yet. They don't know what the calibration for these characters are yet. I mean, they've got a generally really tight understanding of David, but that's because Daniel Levy created the show and is playing this character. And David feels really fully formed pretty much out of the box. And we'll get to that like in a while, because it's kind of wild to me that Daniel Levy doesn't have an Emmy nomination for this yet. It's just, it bothers me a little bit, which kind of plays the hand of, the show gets significantly better. 
and becomes much more enjoyable, becomes much funnier, um, and become and figures itself out as a result of that. And so once it does that, it's a much more enjoyable, pleasurable show to watch. Um, I don't like love and think it's the end all be all sort of deal, but I do think, especially by season two, because I did end up watching all of season one and all of season two um, for this, is that it's a very funny show that has realized exactly how to deploy its uh, the roses in really appropriate ways, and more importantly, how to deploy those actors in really good ways. Um, I was telling my person, especially as, as we wound down season two, of like, the smartest decision this show makes is, you know what? Eugene Levy's going to be the straight man. And it's the best decision the show makes. Is like, yeah, we know Eugene's funny. What if we don't let him be overly funny? And it's just like, and let him let everyone else around him be really heightened, and it a fits the character of of um, Johnny Rose I think really really well, um, but at the same time it also allows Eugene Levy to do something different, which I think is really important as next to Catherine O'Hara the most high profile person in this show, um, also apart from like Chris Elliott. Um, so overall, I think the show's really, really good. I think it gets much better with it as it goes on. Um, I do think that there are like weird bumps um, in it. Um, most noticeably, um, Tim Razan is not comfortable in this show in any way, shape, or form. And I don't know why he keeps coming back. Um, but that's a, that's a larger discussion to have. So... All that being said, I'm glad that I have watched this. I'm going to finish watching what seasons are available because I do think it's a really funny show once its gears get going. Um, But yeah, those first five episodes, maybe? Yeah, I think it's the first five episodes or so of season one are just real rough for me to get through. Um, And so it's around the time where that fruit winery hires Moira. Her burblingers. Yes, exactly. It's just like, uh, okay, no, you figured this out a little bit, I think. You, you've realized what you can do here. It's so good. And, and uh, no, this is like, the, that's the episode where they realize, I think, in no small part that this is how you, this is how we use Eugene Levy really, really well. And I think that's the episode where they figure it out. Um, so I generally think it's really funny. It's really smart. It just took a little while for them to get there. Um, but once they get there, I think that they find stuff. Um, and I can dig in more to this, but I want your initial thoughts on my thoughts now. Okay. Um, well, I, uh, am over here trying to like be cool, but you could probably see i got like a stupid smile on my face i'm so happy i'm glad you like it um and the reason i have a stupid smile on my face is that i think my guess and i look forward to your thoughts as you you know you know keep watching it is that i think you're gonna by the time you get to season four and five i think you're gonna kind of love it um so because it keeps getting better as it goes along and i think part of why i connected with it so strongly so quickly is that i watched season five first or at least the part of it you know the beginning of it and then i went back and i start so it's similar to um very different show um torchwood where i tried to watch torchwood um and i because you know i'd seen all the doctor who 
And I really disliked, I tried so hard. I like gave it a good college try when I was in college and just like made it through three episodes. It's like, okay, no, no, this is just bad and not for me. And then Children of Earth was so insanely good that it made me care about all of the characters. So then I went back and I watched season one. I was like, okay, this is still not great and not for me, but I really am invested in all of these people now. And I, and so watching them go through this journey to where they were going to be in that one in, in children of earth, which is the third series of, of Torchwood kept me invested. And so seeing where things are in season five, and getting a set like a taste for the flavor of the show, the tone of the show, helped. So that when it helped that when I went back to the first episodes, I was like immediately connected with the characters. And I think you were putting, uh, tapping into uh, them finding the right tone for Johnny. For me, by far the biggest problem with the start of the show is they are completely misusing Chris Elliott. He's in way too much of no, it. No, no, no. Yes, no. That's the, that was like one of the larger points I was going to dig into of like. Yeah, was Chris Elliott, and so go ahead. Yeah, no, he he's it's like he's doing a very specific big swing kind of thing. Um, I was talking about the show with with one of my brothers, and it's just like he doesn't do small swings, <laughs> and it's it's a it's a big swing, and it for me really doesn't work, and like tonally it doesn't work. Like, did you remind me? Is the episode with the fondue? Did you see that episode? I yes. like literally nauseated watching it every time i've seen that one it's just like it's it and and that means they achieved what they were going for which was gross out humor right but like it's not even humor for me even just thinking of it turns my stomach it's so gross and that they just didn't have the right balance of the tone and over the course of the seasons like by the time you're in season five um I guess I won't say anything because it's a spoiler and I don't want to spoil anything for you. They recontextualize his role. So he's still the mayor, but that doesn't really, that's not why he's interacting with people most of the time. Um, And they like kind of like pivot the character and it's much, much more effective. It works much better the way that he's positioned in the later seasons of the show. Um, and, And they also, do smaller doses. They, he, I think his performance is tweaked, has tweaked a little bit over time, but it's less about that. And it's more about how he's used and how that character is deployed in the show. And that makes all, all the difference in the world for me. No, I, do, I absolutely agree. Like, I do think that a lot of my issues, especially early on and throughout a lot of season one and to a certain degree in season two is the fact that, Roland is depicted alternatively, alternately as both a deeply stupid human being, but also incredibly shrewd at the same time. And while there's a way of playing that, they don't know what that is. Um, and they can't figure out a way to reconcile both of those at the same time. Um, and it's really frustrating to watch because I like Chris Elliott as a performer, but he doesn't work in this show, in at least in the early going, especially in season one. Um, in part, again, because they don't know what to do with him apart from play this very broad stereotype. Um, and it becomes really hard to like the show because he's there totally as a foil for the roses, which is that the entire existence of the characters is, is as a foil for the roses, which is a really big mistake 
since there are different ways to provide foiling that does not require him to be this hick idiot, basically. Um, so a little bit like how they start to shift that to a certain degree by the end of season two, where the Roses run into their old friends at some restaurant and then Jocelyn and uh, Roland show up there as well. And it gets back to that core issue of Roland's an idiot, but then at the same time, he slow plays these rich pompous assholes to get them to keep saying horrible things about his town. And it's like, but both can be true, but also it just means that Roland's not consistently written. And it's a big problem. And I'd much rather have Roland be consistently written and also not a really bad stereotype at the same time. Um, And you juxtapose that against um, how they use Twyla. Um, My partner pointed out upon rewatching this with me of that Twyla is essentially... Shits Creek's The Town's version of Alexis and that Twyla has had this deeply surprisingly complicated life of various misadventures but it seems generally kind of well-adjusted despite all of that stuff and it's the best kind that's the correct kind of foiling I think is having Twyla as a sort of counterpoint to Alexis Um, and then like Smaller touches, like the fact that the guy who plays Bob always walks into a scene as if he's half jogging or finishing jogging (laughs) and is also just generally sort of obtuse in a way that results in everyone else getting frustrated and run circles or felt run circled around. That's a better way to deploy this kind of stupid, stupid, but shrewd fool type of concept than what they do with Roland. And I think that there's ways to balance that kind of rich people in the sticks sort of humor that they go for a little too early on and then find ways to better integrate everything together. And by season two, their concept of integration from Moira being on the city council to them crashing this party, basically, um, I think generally works really, really well to demonstrate that. Um, so I think that they're, they once they figure out what their balance is, I think it works really, really well. And then just the degrees to which yeah i i was going to transition to another point but i'd rather hear your thoughts on what i just said yeah i think that uh i I agree and the one of the big things that it was a flag for me earlier i was like i actually really like jocelyn Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if if, it's a good thing that jocelyn is in these scenes with roland or i would be having a really hard time like with all of this um and something they start doing and there i think there's some of this in season one but certainly by the time you're in season two or season three did you get the haircut yes yeah that's a good example that scene where what's what you think is going to start as a like a scene of of moira insulting right or trying to like it's like a terrible haircut it looks horrible obviously like who would think that this was a good haircut and and it in what you realize is that that is not what it is. It's not that. It's that this isn't the right haircut for her. Yeah. And this is like, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this haircut for Jocelyn. And it looks great. And the, the Catherine O'Hara's performance so good because you can feel the sincerity. Cause that would just be very, it would be words, but meaningless. And it would feel harsh and cruel with a different performance. 
Um, But it's so it takes this what is you're expecting to be a critique of like the small town bumpkin kind of thing. And it just turns into instead this really beautiful and lovely and aware read from Moira, who's so frequently in her own world and so incredibly self-involved that you kind of forget that she's observing all this other stuff and that she's an actor and like her job is observing people and she's actually really, really good at it. And the way they deploy that for her, um, like they, they use, they use that trait of Moira Mm -hmm. to great effect. Uh, Like the moment that comes to mind for me is, is from the finale of season five. So I won't say anything, but it's just really this really great scene with Stevie. Um, and, and so so what sh- would what could so easily be if you toned the show or balanced it just slightly different really harsh and mocking and cruel and um just sort of angry and bitter the like the kind of comedy uh is instead this just gooey nougated center of kindness um with lots of silliness on on you know the outside and lots of uh, fish out of water, ridiculousness, and all this other stuff. But when you crack into it, it's like instead of like all of, all of these characters actually have interesting depth to them, except for in the beginning, Roland. <laughs> and so that's why, like Twilight, like you're saying, she has this whole other backstory. Like the, these other things that are going on um, that are actually, if someone would take a moment to sit and talk with her probably fascinating and yeah. moira seems completely one-dimensional and alexis seems very one-dimensional but uh certainly by you know the the stuff with her and ted and the way that they progress alexis through to season i would say three and four um and also in five but like she's kind of turned a corner by the end of season three and into season four is um just really really interesting and compelling and emotional and emotionally satisfying TV. Um, so yeah, I think in all the characters, like Stevie too. I love Stevie yes. and David together. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of like where I was about to transition is the fact that again, David feels the most fleshed out. Like on a performance level, Dan Levy is just, just kind of mind blowingly good in terms of how really consistent facial expressions are, gestures, kind of like just how he moves through blocking and everything and responds to things i think just are really really good and it's a shame that he hasn't been nominated and i just chalk it up basically to the fact that eugene levy got nominated yeah this year he's not famous (laughs) he's not famous is basically how it kind of boils down for me because the characters just even across these two seasons i watched very consistently played and then the other thing on top of that is the fact that David is deeply, deeply practical in a way that doesn't feel immediately apparent, but then steadily over how he responds to things that are happening are really clear. Like, I remember asking my my person while we were watching this, I am shocked that David knows how to hang t-shirts on those uh, laundry things outside the motel, because why would he know how to do that? type of thing. It's like, it doesn't make sense that he knows how to do that. But then steadily, you like, he has all these sort of like practical application type knowledge. And it's also like when he, when they get that very large cut of the check from the blouse bar name sale, which is just 
the best sequence, I think, of watching them <laughs> negotiate with this lawyer from the Australian blouse barn. Um, and then, like, the way that he's trying to say, 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 save it, I think is what I want to say. Hey. Right. Yeah. Like, all of them are ready to blow. Even Johnny is ready to blow that 40000 on something. And he's just like, we should put it in the bank. And just, like, the degrees to which that he has that knowledge is, I think, really, really good. Even if they also very smartly undercut it by, he doesn't understand what a tax write-off is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a fun episode. <laughs> um, but it also, like, demonstrates that the show does not know how unemployment works. <laughs> well, <laughs> even uh, is it Canadian unemployment? They're very unspecific. No, like, uh, they've confirmed that the show is in Canada somewhere, but you still have to pay payroll taxes to get that stuff. So it's just like, yeah, you can say Roland worked for you. Did Roland pay any payroll taxes? <laughs> um... <laughs> So I think there's that element of it, but I do, I just generally think that the show finds a really good gear and a lot of that is done through to a large degree, David. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you have said that about Alexis because a lot of like the love triangle with Mutt and with, uh, what's the other guy's name? Ted. Ted. Thank you. Um, is kind of frustrating in part because again, Tom Rison just, Roson does not seem seems really miscast for this for me and I'm not just saying that because my literally the only thing I can else compare him to in this is playing Doc Holliday but it's also just like he provides zero charisma he's a slate um for me in this and it's whether that's by design or not it's not a great choice and it's okay yeah it's it's really hard um, for me to like latch onto him as someone who has any kind of depth um, and any sort of like beyond a surface level kind of attraction, um, which he does have because he's a very pretty man. I'm not denying that part, um, but it's it's it was it's been very frustrating for me to try to figure out what the appeal of Mutt is. Um even to a certain degree of kind of seeing what it is about Ted. But when Ted comes back from that honeymoon or couples vacation that they gave him three extra days on because of pity, which is just the (laughs) best, which is just the best sort of escalation of that joke of, yeah, I know I still went on the vacation that we booked. And then they gave me three extra days. It's just like, Oh, sweet baby Ted. But also like the, having that and then having him see that Alexis has a skill set. It is not filing. It is not answering phone calls, but she's a decent grief counselor for people who have just lost their pets. Um, And I think that that's a good way of like balancing both of them to a certain degree. Um, But I'm eager to see how they do that more. I just, I'm frustrated by the fact that I know I have another full season of Mutt, at least. Um, <laughs> so I'm just like, meh. But tell me tell me why I'm wrong about Mutt. Okay. Yeah. I think that I enjoy Mutt quite a bit. And I, I enjoy Rosen's performance. Though I was able to watch most of it before I connected 
that he's Doc Holliday. So that I yeah. didn't have to get over that hurdle. Because, um, yeah. of course, he's terrific. Uh, one of the one of the highlights of, of Winona Earp, I, in my opinion. Um, though there's quite a few um, over on Winona Earp. But the um, for me, Mutt really works because, again, it's just as a foil because he's just really straightforward. He's just him. Uh, it's like when they're making, when they're building a cedar chest. <laughs> like that, that that was really solid. That's probably the best I've liked Mutt. Um, and I think the issues that I have with Mutt are around casting, not because of uh, Rosen, but because I'm supposed to believe that he's Jocelyn and uh, yes. and. Yeah, that is not a thing that happens genetically. No, that's like I'm not at all. Roland and Jocelyn did not have have Mutt, and and if Mutt is their kid, then he is too old. So there's also uh, that Tim, aspect of it too. Tin Rosen yeah. is too old to play him. The character might be young, and like if, if you do the math, and they had him really young, fair enough. But like, like that. No, it doesn't line up. And so there, th- that part of it doesn't work for me, like, at all. And so I just kind of separate out that part of the character. And he's just, like, guy who is cute and lives in a shed in the wood. And uh, <laughs> it's the kind of lifestyle that he can get away with because he's young and in good health and is, a, I guess, a, a woodworker. I don't know. There's family money keeping him, some level of support keeping Where? him afloat, but it's not going to last, right? He's this clear. This is clearly a character that is going to like fall off a cliff at a certain age and like just get his life is going to kick him in the nuts because he doesn't have enough. Uh, he doesn't have enough of a skill set on how to live and you know take care of yourself and and all this other stuff. Like he can get by just bu- just fine by himself in the woods. Taking odd jobs, I guess, around town is what we're supposed to think he's doing to to just get enough food to get by, right? But as soon as he has any real expenses, he's gonna have trouble. So, um, for me, as a very simple, straightforward, direct contrast to everything that was Alexis's life, he works really well. Yeah, but by the end of season one, we're sort of transitioning out of that is the problem Mm -hmm. and he's still around Mm -hmm. and i don't understand it's difficult for me to reconcile this idea of yes he serves that purpose and he serves it well but then we're moving past that to a certain degree i feel like of like how she's assimilating into schitt's creek and everything it's just like well there's not really a need for that anymore and Um, the show moves past him yeah basically i would say yeah. yeah So, I, I I don't disagree is what okay. I'm saying. Yeah. The the character works much better for me than for you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm like I'm glad you had me watch both of these, and I'm eager to sort of dive in more, and I will keep you posted um, as I keep going through it because I am mm-hmm. going to finish it of uh, what's okay. available. So I'm gonna need to hear from you when you get to uh, I'll say the Valentine's. Or like no, the singles week. I'll say singles okay. week. You'll okay. know what I mean. That's a very yeah. there's some very good Alexa stuff there. Um, and I'm gonna I'll just say Tina Turner. Okay. Look forward to your thoughts when you get to those moments. Okay. okay. 
Uh, Now we'll take a break and listen to a trailer or probably the theme song for Descending Stories. And we'll be right back with the second half of the Make You Watch a Thon. That was the jazzy and fabulous first season theme to Descending Stories or... Uh, Descending Stories, as its full title is Descending Stories, Showa Genroku Rakugo Shinju. I'm just going to call it Descending Stories um, because I'm going to mispronounce it. Right. Well, I mean, you do want that because it's a lot easier to say and it's slightly less depressing than what that translates as. Yes. Ah, that makes sense. I'm seeing this yeah. on Wikipedia. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That probably would have impacted my reaction to the end of season one if I had read the translation of that title. More on that in a moment. So, Noel, why don't you introduce this segment? Right. So, Descending Stories is a two-season, 25-episode anime uh, adapted from a manga that deals with the life and times of a Rakugo artist, um, which is basically a storyteller. There are a number of stories that they are required to memorize and perform. Um, Rakugo has been described as a one-person sitcom um, in which one person performs all the parts um, using different voices and slightly shifting how they look or face in certain ways to denote different characters. Um, the only props that they're allowed are a fan and a handkerchief. That's basically all they get to convey things. Um, so everything else has to be done through the power of imagination. Um, so the series covers basically the life and times of this one particular fellow um, who goes through three different names. We don't never actually learn his actual name. Um, I call him Kiku, uh, but you can also call him Yakumo. Um and his from when he was a young boy apprenticing uh, prior to the start of World War II, all the way up until the 90s, the aughts, it gets it gets a little timey, wishy-washy towards the end, but deals with his life and how that storytelling art develops and changes. And this was one of my best shows in 2017 um, for the second season, and I had always 
wanted Kate to watch it. And I kind of maintain that this is a show for serious television people who don't watch anime and are like turned off by anime in a lot of ways. And it's just like, oh, aha, but I have the show for you. <laughs> Here it is. Um, and so I really wanted Kate to watch it. And that's why I picked it. Um, and I also wanted Kate to watch something that was vaguely depressing after making me watch The Leftovers. I'm just sorry that there were no spies in this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was other stuff. There was other good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I think by the end of the after seeing all of it it's two seasons the first season is 13 episodes the second season is 12 episodes each episode is about 25 ish minutes yeah um, except for the first episode except for the first episode um i i like it and i respect mm-hmm. it and i yeah. have i think it has a lot of really interesting things to say about storytelling and about art and about creatives um, I could connect with a lot of stuff that they were saying about uh, Rakugo. Uh, I mean, in just in, connect it with my violin playing and musicians that I know and, and the struggle between modernizing uh, an art form um, and then the question of when when that loses its identity and all these different things. There, There's a lot that you could connect classical, especially classical music, to this this art um like especially like a solo performer on a stage by themselves on like unaccompanied um like if you're just gonna go up on a stage and play can you keep an audience um and what kind of music would you do like there's a lot of 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 really strong parallels and i think that really helped me connect to the thematic discussions the show wanted to have um there's some absolutely gorgeous animation really powerful and affecting and like like that the, with the fire and the I forget the name of the Sh- Shinigami the Shinigami oh that was just like great there's some really really great stuff in in this show um I got to the end of the first season and I was like what what's going on oh oh that's right this show started with a completely different character that I yeah. don't care about at all because he's not yeah. in most of this first season and oh this whole second season is going to be about this character I don't care about um okay <laughs> and then i grew to care more about that character by the end of the season but not nearly as much as i did about the characters in season yeah. one and that so they, there's some fundamental problems i have with the show one of them yes. is that i don't like most of the characters and i don't care about or respect most of the characters and that's yeah. a problem for me <laughs> um and also uh i mean this is an adaptation of a of a manga manga um so obviously they were following that so it's it's hard to like say like i don't like the anime storytelling choices because it's not necessarily i can't speak to how much of it is the anime and how much of it is the manga but um the writing for some of the characters uh is like this, this is a show that is not interested in like half of its characters and that is a problem for me Especially when the characters it is very uninterested in are all of the women, all yes. of them, and um, many of the men, but all of the women, and it's just very hard to connect with that. Um, especially when, like the the so so in the I guess spoiler alert I don't know yeah at the end of the first season, all of a sudden one of the main characters is no longer on the show anymore. Like a dramatic thing happens and they're just off the show. And it 
it's right when you think the show is clicking back into place and now we're setting up season two and we're going to do something different, but this like shake up the formula, but you know, in a way that you would expect from TV, it's certainly American TV. And they don't do that. They do something different points for shock value points for uh, drama. And it, like, it really hits you in the gut. It's really effective. Uh, and then I go, oh, but wait, I don't, <laughs> I don't care about this other version of the show. Um, and it's all predicated on decisions that you don't see, that aren't explored, and that aren't given anywhere near the respect that they deserve. And so I think that the troubles that I had with Descending Stories is that I think not caring about or respecting or being interested in, maybe it's not even that, it's just not being interested in the main character one one of at least one of the main characters um throughout the whole show the main character the show's about i don't care about him and i'm not that interested in him and that's a real hurdle obviously um but um that that's a real hurdle and then when you add on top of that like i i just felt like um i could just see it's like you know so you watch a show and you can just see how the things that are happening are just catnip for like the average viewing audience or like the kind of audience that they're trying to get. Right. Yeah. And it just drives you nuts. <laughs> so yeah. like, and of course they do that. They, of course they reveal that really this character did nothing wrong ever. And they're the secret hero the whole time, but they're so great. They can't tell anyone and they have to take that burden on themselves, which happens in season two. They rewrite one of the climactic moments of season one. Cause well, Less of a rewrite and more of an unreliable narrator. Sure. Which is the point. Yeah, yeah. but I just think it's stupid. <laughs> I don't like... Okay. Like, and I'm obviously it was based on a pre-existing things, so it's not like they just decided at the end, oh, let's change it up. It was the plan all along, but I didn't yeah. believe it and I didn't buy it. Um, and that's a problem. Um, so so like, that really just took this out of a being able to really love the show and took it uh-huh. to a place like so so because of these things i got to the end of the first season and i was just like wait seriously huh wait i just realized what a journey this show took me on and i'm actually really invested in the show and i feel like i've been through an emotional journey and okay i guess they got me because that's really like I completely forgot that that other guy even existed, and he was the, how the show started, and and I feel like I I have very strong emotions about this. So clearly they did their job. <laughs> Be like I, it's like one of those things. Like I didn't couldn't say that I loved it while I was watching it, but when I finished it, I was like, okay, now this is some bullshit, and let me tell you the five million reasons why, listing specific episodes and instances. You know, so it's 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 a sort of a strange thing, and I hope that. You're not too disappointed. No, no, I'm not. Like, it's a big swing of a show in a lot of ways. Like, the decision to do the entire season, first season, is a big flashback, basically. A very long flashback that ends how it does. And then goes, right, remember this guy? (laughs) And now it's the entirety of his his how how they describe his journey as being sort of kindred spirits of like people walking to the same destination but on different paths um and how that gets played out here um and i think a lot of that just boils down to a desire for structure of how much um kiku the guy who you have no interest in no respect for etc etc wants very much for this storytelling form to end 
with him because a he's a selfish asshole yeah because but he is b, a giant ego. yeah and a giant ego but b also because he wants it to because there's no other way for it to survive basically because short of having um a sugoroku um there to carry on that other type that he's on that other type of storytelling that he's unable to do. Kate's making a ridiculous face because she's not buying any of this. Um, well, no, it just like I just I'm in my head. My head went to La La Land. He needs to save jazz. <laughs> he right. knows best for all of the world what this art form should be, and only his interpretation is correct. And anyone who doesn't agree with him, uh, well, they're just wrong, and they don't really understand the truth about jazz, man. They're selling out, and that's just talked about this before well that's from my perspective that's just such complete and utter bullshit it's just making it all about him and this whole art form should die for the entire world rather than he be like challenged on what it means well i i don't think that it's a for me i don't think it's about challenged by what it means though it is to a certain degree i think it's more so him recognizing that he can't his style cannot adapt and he cannot adapt he's not willing to adapt yes right and I think that that's sort of what it is. Like, he's at least self-aware enough to know that his style cannot adapt and it won't carry through. And that without without someone else to, that has that ability, then there's no way for it to survive. Um, which is why, on a whim, as they keep saying, he takes up Yutaro, who has a type of style that is closer to this one that shifts to the time period. Um, but is also a much... A much simpler person and a person who I think as the story progresses, his idea that he embodies the storytelling performance sans ego um, as a way of helping it to survive because now it like can be felt. I think there's something really kind of potent about that concept um, that I think the show generally does a really good job of juxtaposing against uh, Kiku's a uh, very technical, very perfectionist sort of ensorcelment type of performance level. Um, but I do, I do see where you're coming from, and I do agree. I'm not disappointed. Um, but I, I just, I was rewatching all of this and just like sobbing at multiple parts because like, oh, this all breaks me. Um, but also watching it again of like going through and like, yeah, man, lady characters in this show just suffer so much in terms of like characterization in terms of writing and it's really frustrating to watch that and like the justifications that you can make justifications about how much of rakugo is very male is male controlled entirely or how that feeds into larger things about japanese society uh circulate through all of this um but it also largely goes unexplored and they paper over the more interesting things of like yeah no we finally have a female one we're gonna we're not gonna show her journey we're gonna skip 16 years later we're not gonna show her journey at all yeah we don't have time for that yeah um and so it's just like but but you you should have time for that. She only got to perform once in the entire show, and she got to perform the easy story, the one that everyone likes, not any of like the hard stuff type of stories. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I end up falling with a lot of it, and I, I it's it's not great. And you get a um, Madonna horse dichotomy real hard, yep. and it's not great. 
Um, well, and it's and, not even just that. It, it goes back to yeah. my disdain for Kiku. Where and and there's don't get me wrong, there's a lot of really gorgeous, heartrending, emotional stuff that they that he gets, and that they like the moments are are really impactful and affecting. And I can totally see how like why this is such a uh, respected and uh, acclaimed and loved anime. I totally get it, but I'm not going to yeah. feel bad for oh this art form that I love is going to die because there's no one else to do this other style. Maybe if you open it up to the other 50% of the fucking population, you'd find somebody else. Maybe if you spent any energy searching for other Rakugo, maybe like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel bad for you that this art, you, you, that you are, that it's, oh, it's doomed that this art form will die with me. When you've put zero effort into making sure it doesn't or trying to help that maybe it won't, like you don't get to have both. You know, so that's that. So I just constantly. Yeah, but I also think that he wants it to die. That was the other thing, which is why he doesn't do any effort, and then that leads into a larger critique as well. Why he's an asshole? (laughs) I don't. Yes, it is among the many other reasons why he's an asshole. Many reasons. Um, Also, uh, and obviously, it's not. I'm not trying to undermine or diminish the meaningfulness and the importance of representations of deep uh, platonic love between men. Just fuck already. Okay? Yeah. Just, just like, come on. And, like, oh, so so listeners, the, there's, there's two characters who are brothers and their contrast, well, basically brothers, adoptive They're brothers. They're adopted, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking incest or twincest or wincest. Um, but the, like, the way that the characters are treated um and there's a deep platonic like emotion and care for 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 them and that's like really the core of of, i mean i really think it's the core of the whole show even though the one character isn't in the second season the 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 way that all the other characters and very specifically the 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 woman in the, the love triangle with them is treated um just so that we can have excuses to have them be emotional and together uh, and involved romantically, but not actually with each other, but through this third person as a proxy is just horrible writing. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's not horrible writing. It's very, they know exactly what they're doing and they don't care. And so it's just really frustrating and um, just like, and this I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the corner of fandom that I that I stumbled across when I was YouTube or Googling. Um, but this idea of no, they have this is such a pure love, and they love each other so much. Um, it's it's more pure than that. It's not base attraction towards each other. It's like okay, no, it is, it is, and that's okay. H- H- Hatsutaro is deeply, deeply hot. He's a very attractive man. Well, they're both drawn. <laughs> to be yeah. very attractive they're supposed to be i don't definitely yeah. think they are but they're supposed to be and yeah like the like this connection that they have with each other is absolutely like they can't live without the each other and they each bring out the like it's it's a romantic partnership that is not yeah. made one and so at a certain point like if you're not going to act it, like the notion of just they keep treating other people like like shit because the only thing they care about is the art and each other and so it's i'm supposed because their love for their brother is so strong 
and pure. I'm not supposed to mind that they treat all these other people like crap. It just, I don't have any patience for it. But, um, I, yeah, I do want I, I want your thoughts on that. But then I do want to get back to praising the show because I have many other things to praise praise about it. So it's not just me. I don't want to just be shitting on the show because there's so much that's really wonderful about it. Um, but first, your thoughts on this. Right. No, I, I do agree that there's a degree like it's it's a many layered love type of thing. And even how they draw him in how he appears in the second opening where he opens uh, Kiku's coat and how he like drapes himself over is a really deeply feminine sort of move um particularly within anime conventions of like how he comes over the shoulder and everything is a deeply feminine sort of move and it's i think it's deep it's heavily it's never made even subtextual i well it's subtextual but it's never made like textual and the likelihood that either of them did anything with one another i think is really unlikely um but i do think that Yes, there's a deep and abiding love there, and which is another reason why Kiku ends up being an asshole in his old age as well. Like, he lost two people he really loved in a really weird way, um, but it doesn't excuse a lot of other things. So, yeah, no, please tell me about the other things that you love. There's also just, there's a lot of, I think queer subtext though i'm not obviously not the right person for that for that conversation that read of it but around kiku finding his voice by embracing his femininity and yes like that's no that's huge yeah really big part of it too and and part of that was really fascinating um the part that i want to make sure that we hit on is the for me that discussion of the different styles of rakugo and also how they bring like the different approaches to that is a one for one with approaches to just any art, but specifically yeah. any kind of performance. So this idea of, and for me, my analog being classical music of like, are you playing what you're feeling and you're using like Bach to express that? Are you playing what Bach would have wanted it to sound like? Or are you playing what the audience wants to hear? Which is the, those are the three approaches that the, the, the main characters that we're following in the, over the two seasons take and they're like, those, that's a conversation, that's an argument that we have in classical music and in any sort of music and expression and art form constantly. And so that was really fascinating. And that was like, for me, that was the part I connected with with the most. Um, and, and then I also did, you know, anytime you spend this much time with, with characters, um, this number of hours, you do like, I was like, fucking Kiko, Kiku. But also, that was a pretty good record. I gotta give you that. And I'm very glad you're making it up with, with your daughter. Your daughter. That ending thing. No, that didn't happen. With your not sleeping with your daughter, daughter. Um, that was really cool. And it's sad that it took you to the, like literally your last bre- dying breath to be like, I guess women can do this too. But you got there. So points. You know, like I, I wouldn't have this strong of an embittered relationship with this character if I wasn't connecting with him. And that's around the animation and the writing, some of the writing and the performance. Yeah, no, and I, I think I mentioned this when I talked about it in 2017 of like the performances of this demand so much from the voice actors. Like the fact that like three of them especially have to do these stories and perform these stories as if they were professionals um, is mind blowing. And also the fact that like Misaka Okada, who voices uh, Kiku, does the entirety of that character across both seasons is like 
mind-blowing i think to me from a performance level again of like this is a deep this there's real layers of like following this character from being a preteen to a 90 year old man basically mm-hmm. um and the ways that that gets depicted and how vocal performances and everything is just really really potent um yeah so it's just it's really good and like you said like the animation i think is just gorgeous like they spent so much money on this show that's so niche um but it looks just phenomenal almost all the time plus the music is also really good (laughs) there's a lot of really good music yeah and the um like i again to just highlight that that especially in the second in some of the stuff in the first season but especially in the second season there are some visuals there are some moments that are just like they take your breath because they're beautiful or because they're horrific or because they're impactful and this uh, i mean i didn't connect with every part of the show but the as a treatise on regret and grief it's also yes. amazing they're just doing a lot of really really thoughtful stuff so yeah i I'm I'm just I'm I fall in this really odd space with this show, but I'm I'm glad that I watched it. I'm grateful to have had the chance to talk with you about it. So thank you for making me watch it, and yeah. um and it's one that I will certainly have percolating in the back of my mind for quite a while, longer than some of the other anime shows that you've maybe watch or that you've encouraged me to watch. Um and and even though I have problems, even though for me it is capital P problematic at times, um, it is certainly an achievement and certainly a show worth watching and I think exploring and examining. So if you are at all intrigued, go to Crunchyroll and check it out. It's something good. Two seasons, 25 episodes. Not that bad. Nope. Yeah. An an anime style that's like nothing. (laughs) Any final thoughts? No, I think this was a really good. So happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Um, if you show notes, you can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV and what you thought of Shit's Creek and of Descending Stories. You can uh, send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can find an M4A chapter feed and MP3 unchapter feed in, a- in Apple Podcasts. And we're also up on Stitcher. And we're both on uh, Twitter. I'm at theteleverse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Noel. And thank you, everyone, for listening for eight years at this point. Wow. Okay. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 